The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Elizabeth Greenfield Crone, was a wife and mother of two young boys when she was struck by lightning in the parking lot of her Houston synagogue when she and her boys had gone to attend a memorial service for her grandfather in September of 1988. Elizabeth's most fundamental understandings of what the world is and how it works were completely transformed by what she learned from her resulting near-death experience. After the lightning strike, her life was changed forever. She began to have dreams about future events, developed synesthesia, uh, started seeing auras, and sometimes had a sense of inanimate objects radiating a life force. Elizabeth has co-authored a brand new book on her experience. The title is Changed in a Flash, One Woman's Near-Death Experience, and Why a Scholar Thinks it Empowers Us All. Elizabeth, welcome to NDE Radio. Well, thank you, Lee. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's a, it's an honor for us to have you, and congratulations on the new book. It's it's fascinating. Um, why don't you begin by uh, telling our audience uh, about your near-death experience? Well, um, I hate to say it, but it was shocking. Um, I I had always been a skeptic when it came to things like near-death experiences, and in fact, when it happened to me, I had never even heard that term. It was 1988, and um, I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old at the time, and we were getting out of the car in the parking lot of my synagogue, and it was raining, and I was carrying an umbrella. And the lightning hit the tip of the umbrella, and I guess it was kind of a flashover effect where... I wasn't struck directly. It struck the umbrella, but it was certainly enough to um, knock me out and, and kill me. And so I immediately fell to the ground, and I had been holding the hand of my two-year-old. My four-year-old yes. had run ahead to the building. And when I fell, um, apparently it burst the eardrums of my two-year-old. I wasn't aware at the time, but lightning is very loud. Uh, I guess it's really the thunder that burst our eardrums. But anyway, my two-year-old was screaming, and his brother ran back out and grabbed his hand and pulled him toward the building. And I thought I was following them into the building. I... I continued moving forward, and we got into the lobby of the building, and both the boys were screaming at that point, and a man was walking by. He had just left the restroom to go back into services, which had already begun, and he stopped and tried to figure out why these boys were screaming, and I was wondering why the man was ignoring me. I mean, I was standing right there. And my next thought was, where's my umbrella? And I looked back out the the window in the door, 
and I saw my umbrella, and it was lying in the parking lot, smoking. It was like a skeleton of an umbrella, and I, I kind of, my gaze shifted to the right, and about 20 feet away from the umbrella, I saw a, a, a heap on the ground, yes. and I realized that I was looking at myself. That was me out there on the ground. And it was very confusing. It was extremely disorienting because I I didn't understand. And um, I, I saw that the soles of my shoes had been blown off, which was also very upsetting to me because I had just bought these new shoes and uh, they had been very expensive. <laughs> And the soles were blown off, and I saw my feet kind of sticking out the bottom of the shoes and could see that my feet were burned. And so I looked down, and I thought I was in the lobby of the building, and I looked down at my feet, and I saw that my shoes were fine. They they were perfectly intact, um, but they weren't touching the ground. I was, mm. like, hovering a few inches off the ground. And... Meanwhile, this man that had stopped to try to help my boys had run into the into the uh, sanctuary where services were going on, and he had said from the back of the room, "Is there a doctor? We need a doctor." Yes. And it, this is a very large Jewish synagogue, uh, just a couple of blocks from a major medical center, hmm. and so. I don't know, 40 men maybe caught up and rushed toward the back of the room. And so I saw that my boys were taken care of and safe. And I knew my family was at services and, and they were going to be fine. So I decided to go back outside and, and try and figure out what was going on. So I floated back out to where my, my body lay on the ground. And I just could not understand it. I, I, I was willing myself to get up. I kept saying, you know, to myself, get up. You are never going to get the stains out of that suit. Get <laughs> up. And then it just dawned on me. I'm not getting up because I'm dead. <laughs> and that was a big turning point, that realization. So... <laughs> That and, that's basically what happened. Yes. To get me and, where where I was. And then, what drew you away from from that uh, scene to the next part of the story? Well, I this kind of relates back to my childhood a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. As a child, I had been um, abused, um, molested, actually sexually molested for six years by a babysitter mm. and each time that would happen I mean as a child it started when I was six and went on until I was 12 and each time it would happen I, I couldn't just lie there and take it. it it was too painful so psychiatrists would say I dissociated I guess I I, I left I yes. could not stay there and take it. So I left and then I would come back when it was over. So when I realized that I was dead after the lightning, 
my my initial thought was, well, you know how to do this. You can just leave. And so I did. Mm. Um, uh, it, I, I left. And there was like a, I'm not going to say it was, I, I didn't see a tunnel or anything like that, but there was, there was a glow. Yes. Over to my right and above. And it wasn't a solid round circle or anything like the sun, but it was kind of like the glow around the sun. And I went toward that. It was like a beacon and it was moving. And I knew that this light wanted me to follow it. So I did. And it led me to a garden. And when I say a garden, I don't mean a garden like what you would think of here on earth. It, it was nothing like that. It was, Lee, I wish I had the words to describe what this looked like, but I don't. Um, it was beyond beautiful. It was beyond my wildest imagination of what a garden could possibly be. Um, and I mean, it wasn't just the the flowers. It it wasn't just the visual scene in front of me. It was also the scents, the aromas in the air, and the music. There was gorgeous music that was nothing like anything I had heard before or since here on Earth. Mm. And there was a bench, and this even the bench was. It, it wasn't just like a garden bench it it was it was like very ornate almost like a, a throne and um a voice said to me to sit down and the voice was that of my grandfather who we had <laughs> been at services to memorialize and he, he he had a very distinctive voice he he was french and he had a heavy french accent so i knew who it was I, or I thought I knew who it was. It yes. turns out now, looking back on it, I believe it was it was God. But I think that he was using my grandfather's voice so as not to scare me and to mm -hmm. give me some kind of comfort and, you know, keep me from being fearful. And of it course. worked. I wasn't afraid at all. And I sat down. And as soon as I sat on this bench, the bench morphed into something that like just conformed to my body or whatever I was at that time. I, I don't even know what my body was, but it, it was the most comfortable thing I've ever sat on <laughs> and, or in. And, um, the, the most overwhelming thing about this garden or this place where I was, was an indescribable feeling of overwhelming unconditional love and it was nothing and still is nothing like I've ever experienced on earth and that's saying a lot because I have children and I yes. feel like that's the closest you can get to unconditional love that's that's pure love and uh, it, it was so much more than that Mm -hmm. I, I have a hard time expressing, um, you, you know, as I was working on this book with Jeff, um, mm -hmm. 
he would ask me questions about the garden and, and where I was and what I had seen and learned. And I kept saying, I can't find the words. I, I don't know what to say. And it, it dawned on me that maybe I'm not supposed to have the words. Maybe, maybe it's reserved for when we actually go there and stay there. Mm. I, I don't know because the words don't exist in English. Well, as you say, in, in, my only language. In your book, mm-hmm. you talk about time and the layers of time and how things are uh, happening um, in a complexity that um, language is linear. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. think it probably suffers from the same problems that uh, our, our feeling about time on Earth suffers from. I, so, I, mm-hmm. so that, so that, I uh, agree. <laughs> anyway, but let me, uh, let you, let you get back to the story. Well, I agree. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, there were so many things I learned during the time that I was there. By the way, I believe I was there for two weeks. And mm. the reason I think that is because there were orbs or I don't know if they were planets or moons or what they were, but there were three of them in the sky. I don't, I don't know what to call it. Uh, up above where I was. Yes. And the way they were moving, I understood to be kind of a, a calendar of sorts. I, I was able to mark the passage of time. I think I have to look back at it now and see it as linear because I would have no other frame of reference. I would have no other way of understanding the information I was given if I didn't remember it in linear terms. Of course. Um, so I believe I was there for two weeks. Um, actually, here on Earth, it was maybe two minutes, maybe, <laughs> that that I was out. Um, but I, I, I got a lot of information over that period of time. And the information didn't come... I, I just... I don't, it's not that I was taught things, like I was not taught the physics of nonlinear time. I just understood it while I was there. It was just, it was a given. This is the way time works here. And I, I don't understand it now. I, I know I understood it there. I had never studied physics before. I still have not studied physics. Uh, <laughs> And maybe if I did, I might understand it. I, I don't know, but it was just a knowing. I just, I just knew how it worked while I was there. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Not really. Absolutely. Uh, okay. because, uh, this, this information could have come to you just as a packet, you know, not linearly mm-hmm. as we were, as we've been describing it, but just, you know, just, infused all at once right it was like an instant download of information Mm -hmm. it was just there yes so yeah was all of this trans uh transmitted through your grandfather's voice at first it was and then he said 
that he was going to just telepathically put it in my what my brain i i don't know what i what i was while i was there but that he was just going to basically download the information he didn't want his voice to disrupt the sounds that i was hearing there the music there was also a like a babbling brook i could hear mm. the water mm-hmm. and he didn't want to disrupt that were there any so sounds the of just, uh, of uh, birds or um, breeze or anything like that? No, no, okay. I didn't hear any birds or or <clears throat> anything like that. I heard music, I heard the water, um, and I heard his voice at first, mm-hmm. and and that was it. Yes, near-death experiences seem to be so personalized, almost as if they're mm-hmm. custom-designed for the person who's experiencing it. Well, that was one of the things I, I learned while I was there. Uh, it, it took me a little while to realize that while I thought I was sitting in this garden, I, I saw lots of other people there in the distance. No one approached me. Mm-hmm. And none of them were alone. They were all paired up with someone. And initially I thought, well, if they're all paired up, why am I sitting here by myself? And then he said to me, well, you're not by yourself. I'm, I'm here. I'm right next to you. So then I wondered if the other people there could see the, the partner that I was with. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if they could or not. But it dawned on me that while I was sitting in this garden, all these other people were not seeing the garden necessarily. They were seeing whatever brought them comfort. Like if, if they were comforted by a, a snowy field, then maybe they were in a snowy field or a forest or, or an Olympic sized swimming pool or, Whatever it was that they loved in this life, yes. they were seeing because that's their heaven. That garden yes. was my heaven. If we were all in heaven, it's just that heaven appeared different to each of us. Hmm. And then what happened? Well, I was, I, I was told that I could decide to stay there, Um, and if I decided to do that, I would need to follow this path. There was a path that led into some mountains, and behind the mountain range, I could still see that glow that I had followed Mm -hmm. to the garden, And or I could choose to go back, and that I could take my time making the decision. There was no rush, no hurry, and... He was there to help me make the decision, he said. And so I asked questions, mostly about my family and, you know, personal things about my life. And I was told that if I did decide to come back, that I would be having a third child. Um, It would be a girl after the two boys and that she had already decided to come back and had chosen me and my husband as her parents. 
And I was also told that my husband and I would be facing a divorce in the future if I decided to come back. And that's pretty much what did it for me. Because I thought, you know, if we're going to end up divorced, which, by the way, I have to say, I was shocked by that. And kind of a little bit argumentative about it because I didn't believe it. We were perfectly happy. We had a good marriage and we're very happy with our growing family. And, but I thought if, if there is even a remote possibility of divorce, I need to be the one to raise these kids. And to do that, I would need to come back. And yes. so I made that decision. Um, and before I came back, I was told that he, he was going to give me information about a couple of things that were going to happen in the near future and mm-hmm. that when those things happened, it was going to trigger a, a memory for me of the garden and the things that I had learned in the garden. And he proceeded to tell me about the next presidential election um, in which George H.W. Bush was going to be elected and told me about the upcoming Super Bowl, which was really comical because <laughs> I don't think I had ever even watched the Super Bowl up to that point mm-hmm. in my life. Um, but anyway, I decided to come back, and he told me that there would be a lot of pain, physical pain, associated with my return. Um, he said I had burns from the lightning. And mm-hmm. he also said that he was going to have to help me back into my body. Um, that when I had left, my soul had expanded. And that he was going to have to squeeze my soul back into my body. And he said it, it would feel like he was giving me just a bone-crushingly tight hug get me back into my body. And that's what happened. I, it was very painful. And then I opened my eyes and I was still lying in the rain outside and people had just come out to help me. And, and I was back and I, I was back, but I wasn't me anymore. So you had been gone for what felt like two weeks, and yet you were still lying in that mud puddle in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and the people Correct. were just arriving. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Now, now um, we have, of course, limited time in this show. One of the things mm-hmm. I, I felt fast, was fascinated by in your book was the fact that um, sometime later, your grandfather uh, called you on the phone. Maybe he we did. could talk about that a little. Yes, that that happened in the spring of 1990. So it was about a year and a half after the lightning strike. And mm-hmm. I was newly pregnant with my third child, who did turn out to be a girl. And it was about yes. 3.30 in the morning, and the phone rang. This is, you know, 1990. It was a landline. Nobody had cell phones. Um And it was on my side of the bed, and it didn't really wake me up. I was in a pretty deep sleep. I had been chasing two young boys around all day, and and I was pregnant, and and I was tired. 
And so my husband was shaking me to wake me up to get me to answer the phone. So I, I, I woke up. I, I really didn't want to pick up the phone because nobody's calling at 3.30 in the morning to give you good news, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I, I thought, well, I don't want to hear whatever it is. But I answered, and it was my grandfather's voice again. And this time it actually was my grandfather. Um, but it was the same voice, the same French accent. And he, at this point, I'm sitting up in the bed, and he said um, he wanted to give me a message for my mom. And I said, well, why don't you call mom? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I could give you her phone number. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I've, I've tried to talk to her, but she can't hear me. And ever since the lightning, you can hear. And at this point, my husband is sitting up in the bed, and he's saying to me emphatically, who is it? Who are you talking to? Mm. And I kept shushing him. Like, I didn't want to waste time talking to my husband when I've got my dead grandfather on the phone. <laughs> exactly. <And> so, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, I said to my grandfather, I said, oh, um, I have to tell you something. And he said, well, I already know that you're pregnant. And I know it's a girl, just like you were told it would be. I said, mm-hmm. oh, I said, um, did grandma find you? Because my grandmother had passed away almost a year after my grandfather. And he said she had found him and that they were together and and that she was whole again. And what he meant by that was she had dementia when she passed away. And so it was very comforting to me to hear that. And his voice started getting faint. And I, I said, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And Meanwhile, my husband is saying, who is it? And <laughs> I, you know, waving him off. And and my grandfather said, it takes a lot of energy for me to make this phone call. And I can't talk anymore right now. But I want you to remember the unconditional love you felt when you were in the garden. Yes. And he said, you will feel that love again as soon as we hang up. And I was very upset that he hung up. He did hang up. But as soon as he hung up, our bedroom filled. I mean, filled with, it wasn't smoke because there was no smell to it. But it was some kind of vapor. It was like sitting in a dense cloud where you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. Hmm. And neither my husband nor I said a word. We were just sitting there. And the way our bed was situated, you could see straight down the hall with our kids' bedrooms on each side of the hall. And we're sitting up and staring straight ahead. I could see like a red laser light, like that you use, like a laser pointer when you're giving a presentation. I could see a little pinpoint of red light. And that red light carried this unconditional love. It, it was overwhelming. I felt that same feeling that I had felt in the garden. And then suddenly, 
the smoke was gone or the vapor was gone. Everything was clear. And my husband, my husband said, who was on the phone? (laughs) And I said, I said, did you see anything? And he said, who was on the phone? And I said, my grandfather. And he said, which one? (laughs) And I told him, and I said, did you see anything? And he said, what smoke? And then, and yet, said, in, in the book, I'm, you say years later he acknowledged that he did see that. Yes, he just didn't want correct. to admit to it. It was. We are. We are almost later, at. Yes. We are almost out of time, Elizabeth. And I wanted to mention the fact that next week we're going to have your co-author uh, Jeff Kripal, who is a scholar and a professor of religion at Rice University, yes. talking mm-hmm. about the book that you two have written. Uh, putting it in the context of various religious traditions and um, uh-huh. and explaining why we need to listen to people who have had such uh, extraordinary encounters as yours with the ineffable and the otherworldly. And so I'm very much looking forward to that conversation as well. We didn't really have time to cover all the gifts that you returned with, uh, dreams and visions of, of future events, uh, and perhaps I can get into that with uh, Jeff next week. But um, this is this has been an amazing experience, and I'm so glad you finally decided 30 years later to write a book <laughs> about it because you can have such an impact on um, on the way people see um, this life and and the reality we think we know and, and the reality that really is the reality of of the universe. So I want to thank you and. Um, and just uh, say I've I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm looking forward to talking with your co-author Jeffrey and uh, next Monday. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the past shows button. And for information about IANS, go to their website at iands.org. And be with us again. Next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio, this is your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.